In sports, no two stories are the same. The Other Pros Podcast takes an in-depth look at the sports industry and the individuals who work in it. Hosts John Ganther and Mike Gambardella interview some of the industry's top coaches, administrators, and athletes. With a combined 30 years of experience working in athletics, Ganther and Gambo offer their perspectives on how sports operate behind the scenes. From coaches to trainers to athletic directors, no titles and no sports are off the table. Without further ado, here's your host, John Ganther. Hello, and welcome to the Other Pros Podcast. I am your host, John Ganther. I know it's been a while, but we are back with another great episode. In this episode, I speak with Jesse Washington, a writer for ESPN's Undefeated and the co-author of John Thompson II's autobiography, I Came as a Shadow. We speak in depth about his career and the time he spent with the legendary Georgetown University basketball coach. Without further ado, here's the interview with Jesse Washington. So we welcome Jesse uh, Washington to the Other Pros Podcast. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about your career um, as a writer um, and as a DJ. We're, I didn't, didn't want to leave that one out. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, and, uh, and then uh, we'll obviously get into the latest uh, book that you just wrote with John Thompson II, um, I Came as a Shadow. So we'll talk a lot about that book and about John Thompson as a coach and as a uh, as a human too, um, just a giant left a giant shadow obviously throughout the country not not only in basketball but just in general. Um, so we'll start off this interview. I like to give uh, our guests just a chance to talk a little bit about their background. Um, certainly with you as a student athlete at Yale, and then uh, you know your career as a writer um, for various newspapers and magazines, and as a DJ. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I like to summarize my sort of path as I'm a kid from the projects who went to Yale and married a doctor and very fortunate in yeah. all those respects um, born in New York City uh, you know parents great parents inspired me equipped me to do a lot of things but also we had a lot of troubles and my dad had a lot of challenges we moved around a lot so I probably went to seven eight schools before I graduated from high school um, although I did all go to the same high school and we ended up from New York uh, we ended up in Poughkeepsie New York uh, where I went to high school and I also found my first newspaper job there, the Poughkeepsie Journal. So shout to them uh, because they put me on and I, and I enjoyed it. And when I was at Yale University, I was a freshman in 86. And this is another era when it came to music and hip hop was really like the, the redheaded stepchild of music, disrespected, disregarded. But obviously I was into it and I became a DJ my freshman year at Yale University. I still got the, the turntables at the crib. I'm the, the skills are still intact. So if you need me to do your event on the internet or in person, holler at your boy. But um, I also, I while I was at college, I had my first job in journalism at the Poughkeepsie Journal, shout to them. And it was something that I really enjoyed. And for the vast majority of my career since then, I have not been strictly a sports writer. Um, and until I came to ESPN's The Undefeated in 2015, I never really covered sports full time. And even now, I don't consider myself technically a sports writer. I do write stories about sports, but I really try to find the things that have a deeper meaning, some bigger objective or purpose beyond just who won or lost the game. And I think that's why I 
was so excited to work with Coach John Thompson on his autobiography, I Came as a Shadow, because he said the first time we met, Jesse, this is not a book about basketball. So that really clicked with me, and I believe his wishes came true with that. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm reading the book right now as we speak. Um, I haven't finished it, but, you know, the first you know quarter of it so far, you know, is early life. There's really not a whole lot about sports. It's really, you know, the injustices he faced as a young person um, and kind of where it led him, you know, to be from, you know, grade school to high school and into college. Um, you know, you just mentioned that you don't consider yourself a sports writer. You've written a lot about you know, entertainment, um, race, sports, culture, um, everything from the Associated Press to Vibe Magazine, Bounce. Uh, you wrote a lot of cover articles for the Houston Press. Um, now you're with the Undefeated. What's it like writing for a publication like that with so many renowned writers? The Undefeated is the best job I've ever had, hands down, because I get to explore so many things that are important to me. Race, music, sports, some combination thereof. Uh, right now, I'm covering the trial of Derek Chauvin, the officer who knelt on George Floyd's neck. And that has nothing to do with sports, but it has a lot to do with things that are very important in the world. Mm -hmm. So I feel very fortunate to be working at a platform like that. We've got TV specials. We've got albums coming out. We have events. And it's just a great opportunity to reach a lot of people. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've been reading a lot of articles with The Undefeated, um, you know, just in terms of bringing a different, uh, you know, aspect to life and especially in sports too. Um, that I think has been really important over the last, um, I'm not quite sure when it was launched. I know you've been working there since 2015, um, but over the last several years, um, it's given an insight into so many different things in the world that I think that it was good on ESPN to do that, to give, you know, the broader audience um, in our country a more broader view of what's going on um, in sports and racing culture. Um, so I'm obviously excited to have you on here and to read more about the articles that you're going to write and Marcus Spears is going to write and William Roden, um, you know, down the road. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, let's see here. So back to the book um, with John Thompson. Uh, it's a book that you co-wrote. Um, I want to know the whole, or at least, I know we probably don't have a couple hours here, but, you know, the story of how this, uh, the partnership came about. Um, did you have a previous relationship with him? Did you know him at all before you started writing uh, the book? Coach John Thompson had no idea who he was and had never heard of me. He filed the story and set the refine himself. So he and his team and his children were glad that he selected me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, I was, I, I listened to the ESPN Daily, uh, podcast that you do with Pablo Torre and you mentioned that uh he told you he's like you know when I signed with Nike I like signing with an underdog and you know that's why I chose you because you're kind of this underdog <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> it that's exactly it he was great with that man coach Thompson was so funny and he would tell a lot of jokes you know and he would poke fun at you and he wanted to see if you could take it and I was happy to take it and you know we would go back and forth sometimes and then Sometimes he would say, well, what do I know? I only went to Providence. Y'all Ivy League blankety blankers think you know everything. So <laughs> it, 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 it was a great experience. Yeah, I, <laughs> Ivy Leaguers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I would say, coach, you sent your son to Princeton. Why are you snapping on the Ivy League? Yeah. And he would say, yeah, well, you know, you know. He's like, I didn't send him. He chose on his own. I would have sent his ass up to Providence if I had it my way. <laughs> <laughs> his son wanted to go to Georgetown. Really? But oh. John, John and Ronnie or just John? 
Well, Ronnie did go. John was his older son, and mm-hmm. he was and he was a, a really good player. He was offered scholarships at Kansas, North Carolina, Villanova, Damn. among other places. Um, and he wanted to play for his dad, but his dad was very leery of that dynamic and thought it would be too hard and unfair for his son. Mm-hmm. And he also, with the reverence that he had for education, he liked Princeton. He liked Coach Pete Carrell. Apparently, according to uh, John the Third. Pete Carrell and John Thompson have a very similar coaching style, including their reliance on profanity. And so, <laughs> so uh, that's where um, John the Third went and he had a great experience and a lot of success. Yeah, no, I've, uh, our head basketball coach here at American is Mike Brennan. He played at Princeton with John Thompson the Third. Um, so I actually had uh, Pete Carrell years ago was here on campus. He goes, he, visits his old players or coaching and all that. So I got a chance to meet him. Um, he didn't drop any F-bombs around me. It was a very brief experience, but it was still cool ah. to meet the guy, the Princeton offense. Yes, sir. I remember Mike Brennan. I was on the bench watching all those games and with JT3 and Brennan and, and, and those guys. So uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Shout out to them. Shout out to you Ivy Leaguers. It's, uh, it's, a cool <laughs> fr- it's a cool fraternity. I wouldn't know anything about that, but that's awesome. <laughs> um, so I got to ask, when he decided to pick you to be the co-author, the co-author, how did you react? Were you like, holy shit, like I'm about to write a book with this, you know, legendary figure? A little bit, but really <laughs> it was like a big sense of responsibility because I felt mm-hmm. that his story was so important historically. And uh, my friend, Dr. Leonard Moore from the University of Texas, after he read the book, he said, Jesse, this is a historical document. And I had to get it right. But once I got my rhythm and got into the groove of it and coach and I really established a trust and a good working relationship, then it was like when you're in a game and all your shots are falling, you know, it just felt, Mm -hmm. it felt right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, I I didn't even think of the, you know, the pressure part of it because it's, you know, this is, you know, he, and you mentioned this in the, in the daily podcast, you know, this is like, I want to tell it from my perspective because, you know, he mentioned, and you mentioned too, he's largely, I think by a lot of people, He's misunderstood. To this day, he's misunderstood and mischaracterized. Yeah. I've had anecdotes since the book came out and coaches past where people would say, yeah, you know, I think he was a racist. To this day, which is one of the most absurd statements ever because of the tremendous amount of close and loving relationships he had with a number of very famous white people. So um, he was definitely mischaracterized and he wanted to tell it himself. And so the pressure came from, you know, um, coach was in his health was fine when we started, but he was also 76 years old. And I knew that this was our chance to do it. If I didn't work out, if he didn't like the work that I would do, then this book might not get read. So I'm just really, really glad that he got to share his wisdom and his philosophies and his life story with everybody before he left us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You also mentioned, um, you know, prior in the in the podcast about the initial meeting that you had with him on Georgetown's campus um, in his quote-unquote office. I don't know if I've mentioned uh, in our earlier correspondence, but I used to work at Georgetown. I worked there for a year in their athletic department. Um, his office, if you want to call it that, you're giving it a lot of credit. It's a closet, especially for a guy who's <laughs> 6'10", 300 pounds. Um, tell me a little bit about that initial meeting in the, in his, his unmarked office. I know exactly where it is in the halls of uh, Georgetown gymnasium. Well, I was shocked at this tiny little room and (laughs) our knees, our knees were almost touching and he just, this was after I got the gig. So this was like our first interview. And I was acutely aware of the fact that I was still in a tryout period, you know, (laughs) Um, 
he just, there was no small talk whatsoever. And like I write in the introduction of the book, he just went in and started talking about all kinds of stuff and like, and just going from topic to topic and saying these things are important and giving me just a taste of stories that I would later come to find out were incredibly profound and deep. We were talking about something. I said, yeah, coach, because you were probably not a person who, who could trust a lot of people. He said, trust people. I don't trust you. And he looked me dead in my face. <laughs> he looked me dead in my face. And we had a good and we had a good chuckle. You know. But I understood what he meant. And I think that by the end of the process, he did trust me. And I'm um proud to have earned that trust. Yeah, I was gonna say if you if he can trust you, um, you know, you've made it, I feel like. Um, because that he's an intensely um private person, I think historically. Um and, you know, their basketball program, too, to this day, um, I feel like is very, um, I don't want to say necessarily guarded, but it's a very close-knit family. Um, and they're very wary of, uh, you know, who they kind of let into their inner circle um, as far as, you know, trusting them. So for you to gain the trust of John Thompson II, it's kind of like gaining the trust of, you know, Don Corleone from The Godfather, I feel like, in a lot of ways. Yeah, you're right about them being guarded, but really they were ahead of their time with that. And that quote unquote Hoya paranoia really now is the standard level of privacy and protection. That's what it really is, is protection for the student athletes. That's standard for college basketball now. People were mad at Coach Thompson because he wouldn't let the media into practice. You think you could just roll up into Coach K's practice now? Heck no, nor should you be able to. You know, it's a classroom. You can't just walk into a college classroom and observe without special permission and a reason to be there and things like that. So coach was ahead of his time in a lot of ways, including the way that he protected his players. You know, okay, call it paranoia all you want. It ain't paranoia if they're really out to get you. Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. And you had mentioned, and part of the book um, is his, uh, his meeting with a drug dealer in the late eighties that was fraternizing with some of his players um, and the amount of, you know, back and forth, he really wanted to meet with this guy and just have a very man to man conversation about, you know, what kind of relationship is he having with, you know, Alonzo Mourning and, you know, how that could look on his program. Um, so I think he was rightfully so paranoid about a lot of these things and, you know, having this meeting with this drug Lord of, you know, Washington DC, if that had gotten out, you know, on social media, like nowadays, He'd probably be fired on the spot. Very much so. And, you know, I mean, he says in the book that he found a lot of things in common with coaching and parenting. And I'm a parent of four and you're, it's your job to be paranoid. It's your job to worry about all the things that might, might happen, the unlikely things that would be catastrophic. And, hey, it's unlikely that your best player would start hanging out with a drug kingpin. To get ahead of it and to control it and to solve it is really a testament to all of his talents and abilities were needed for him to survive that situation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I read that. Uh, I think you wrote about it in The Undefeated. And I read that snippet um, recently and I was getting goosebumps almost, you know, just listening to how he went about having this meeting uh, with this uh, drug dealer. Um, and at the very end, that the guys were hanging out with them again, the drug dealer, and there he was smiling ear to ear after the after the meeting with Coach Thompson. And they were like, "Why are you so happy?" And he's like, "Oh man, John Thompson's the man. He's like the coolest dude ever." <laughs> well, the, Ray Foyman was in awe of Coach Thompson, like everybody else, and he was man. And I can testify, Coach Thompson was, the, you know, one of the brightest, 
but he was a great man. Say that about a lot of people that I've met at all. And I think Rafael Edmund recognized that as well. Yeah, he's certainly, uh, you know, his his influence didn't stop, obviously, on the basketball court. Um, you know, it was everything from basketball players to students, um, you know, to even, you know, the people who are running the drug streets of Washington, D.C. Um, in the 1980s. Uh, so back to, this is kind of going backwards in time a little bit, but this is in the beginning part of the book, you know, John Thompson talks about uh, growing up, he went to a Catholic school at a young age um, and a nun called him retarded. Um, I think he was 10 or 11 years old. Um, and after that point, he was essentially kicked out of the Catholic school and he had to go to public school um, where he found a teacher that, you know, he says, you know, saved his life basically, um, you know, especially from an education perspective that took the time to help him learn and to grow as a student. Um, so how does a guy, you know, who's, was called he does and he did become the face of georgetown university and he is more responsible than anybody for vaulting them into the top echelon of american higher education and i think he did that with integrity and with his character and what he stood for and his principles and and also america loves basketball and he won so coach would absolutely point out i could have been saint john but if i didn't win ball games nobody would have paid attention to me so it was the fact that he won with such high character and such high ideals and really standing for all the things that are right and graduating his kids. That's how he became the most famous Georgetown person ever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, it's quite the accomplishment in and of itself. Um, you talked about his, you know, you just mentioned his character. That's how, you know, he was able to win and to elevate himself with, within that university. Um, at a young age, he was able to, develop a friendship with Red Auerbach, um, the coach of the Celtics. Um, you know, Red and he met Red in high school and Red, you know, kind of mentored him a little bit. Um, and, you know, and early on in the book, he talks about how much time he was able to spend, you know, one-on-one -on -one getting to learn from him. Um, did he tell you, you know, like maybe not at a young age, did he realize how lucky he was, you know, to be hanging out with a guy like Red Auerbach in his teenage years? He absolutely realized how lucky he was, and he was extraordinarily uh, appreciative of that opportunity that sort of fell into his lap. He called him the Aristotle of basketball, and he says it in the book. Do you know how many people would have paid money to be in the position that I was in for free to hear all these life lessons, not to mention basketball lessons from one of the greatest basketball minds of all time? Um, so let's go back in time a little bit, uh, you know, JT2. Um, goes to predominantly white um, high school, Catholic high school, um, and plays basketball there. Um, do you think that that had a lot, uh, gave him a lot of confidence to take the Georgetown job? I think it was, that was one of several experiences that gave him the confidence to succeed at Georgetown because when he was a kid, his father told him at a very young age, son, study the white man. And what he meant was figure out how that world works because there's this whole set of circumstances going on that, that is hidden from you as a black kid growing up in segregated Washington, DC. You gotta study it and figure out how you can navigate that. So his first lesson was at Carroll High School in Washington, DC. Um, that was his introduction. And then he went to Providence and then he went to the Boston Celtics. You know, So all of these were his, his lessons in studying how this white world works. And then he became a high school basketball coach at St. Anthony's in Washington, D.C. In the, in the late 60s and early 70s. 
And that was his final lesson in how these things work because the, the king of DC basketball at that time was Morgan Wooten. He coached at Suburban, a white guy, yeah, legendary yeah. coach that's coached at DeMatha. And Coach Thompson had to figure out how to be successful within that context. And he was. So all of those experiences are what made him know when he went to Georgetown, he knew he could be successful. And he asked the president of the university, okay, um, what are you trying to accomplish with the team? And he said that the, the president told him, well, I'd like to go to periodically go to the NIT and once in a while to the NCAAs. And coach said he had to keep a straight face because he said, yeah, I think we could do that. But inside he was like, man, I'm, yeah. I'm shooting for much more than that. Right. So he knew he could be successful at Georgetown. The question was, would Georgetown let him be who he was? And fortunately, they did. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And that was a perfect segue to my next uh, topic. Um, you know, he, his first two years were a little rocky. Record-wise, he was around 500. Um, and then after that, you know, I kind of looked at their, the archives there. I think, don't think they dipped below, you know, 600 in terms of winning percentage for the next, you know, 20 years after that, within those first, after those first two years, was he at all nervous about being fired? He didn't say so. I think that he just didn't want to keep losing. You know, um, yeah. he had a six game losing streak his second season, I think, or maybe his third season. And he said, I had never lost six games in a row in my entire life. Mind you, this was a guy who won 55 straight in high school, one of the best DC high school teams of all time won a national championship at Providence, won two championships with the Boston Celtics, <laughs> uh, was one of the best teams in the city. His second season at St. Anthony's that he coached, I think they went 21 and two. And all of a sudden he took over a team that's three and 23 at Georgetown. So I don't think he was worried about losing his job. He just wanted to win. But had he not made the NCAAs his third season with a, a last second shot by Derek Jackson, then who knows what would have happened? He would have went into his fourth year with a cloud hanging of his contract, with a cloud hanging over his head. And he knew that he had to win to be successful. He knew that he had to win immediately and that he wasn't going to get, as a black coach in the 1970s, he wasn't going to get a lot of latitude. So if he was worried about losing his job, he never let on, not to me and not in the book. I think he just put it out of his mind and said, I need to do what I need to do in order to win games and everything else will take care of itself. Win, winning cures everything. I know it's a cliche and we hear it all the time, but it is true and pretty much every. I'm looking at, you know, the all the black coaches that are coaching in, you know, NBA college right now. Um, you know, in your opinion, do you think they owe a lot of their opportunities and their successes um, to a guy like John Thompson just because of, you know, he was a trailblazer in the early 70s when there were only, you know, three or four black coaches coaching in college basketball um, because of his success and because of the way he ran a program for so long? I think that they do owe some of their opportunities to Coach Thompson, but I believe what Coach Thompson would say was, I owe my opportunities to the people who came before me. John McClendon, Cal Irvin, Big House Gaines, uh, all of these coaches who really toiled and suffered in order for him to be able to coach at Georgetown. So he felt that he was just passing it on. He had mentors that, that he talks about at his, in his book from Boys Club Number 2 who coached and counseled him. So Coach would not take credit for these guys getting jobs. I think what he would say was, I felt the responsibility to, to succeed and to create more opportunities for those who come behind me. And I hope that these coaches today 
feel an opportunity to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and looking at his at his career, you know, he was there for 27, 28 years. Um, he retired in 1999. Um, he was, I think he was 57 or 58 when he retired. Um, did he have any kind of, you know, regrets about retiring at that age? Um, because I know a lot of people nowadays, a lot of coaches are coaching, you know, into their 60s, into their 70s. If, you know, did he have any kind of regrets? Like, would he have wanted to stay a little bit longer? Coach Thompson expressed no regrets about retiring when he did. I think he knew it was time because he knew that to coach how he needed to coach and to coach the type of kids that he, he wanted to work with required a huge amount of effort, you know, and a coach's responsibility does not end when the whistle blows at the end of practice. In a lot of ways, that's where the most important part of their responsibility begins. And so he knew that in order to do a good job with these kids, he had to expend an enormous amount of energy and he, he just didn't have that anymore. And he would be doing his kids and his team and his university a disservice if he didn't give that job to somebody who could put all that was required into it. So right. I don't think that he regretted it. And he never expressed any regret in retiring when he did to me. Right. Yeah, it was certainly a, a long and you know, illustrious um, career. Um, and I think that a lot of what you know, he did, went back to, well, I can, at least from personal experience, when I was there back in 2014, when they broke ground on the brand new facility that bears his name now, um, and it was just a who's who in the basketball world were, was there. I mean, I'm, I was there, I just started working there maybe a month before, but I'm standing in the same room with Allen Iverson, Dikembe Mutombo, Patrick Ewing, um, Alonzo Mourning, I think Paul Tag, I, I'm, there's just like, there's a long list of people there. Um, and some of them, you know, I think Jeff Green, there's a lot of other, you know, and current NBA players who didn't even play for him um, were there. And um, I think Jeff Green donated at least like a million dollars to that project to have that facility built. So I think that speaks volumes for him. That must've been a great experience for you to be there. And the level of respect that coach Thompson still gets to this day is really just a testament to what an amazing person he was. I mean, just look at the names that are endorsing him on the back of his book. Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Bill Clinton, Phil Knight, Tim Cook from Apple, Allen Iverson, Mike Wilbon. I mean, it's amazing. And there were more, we just couldn't fit them on. So I was about to say, you could have, you could have had an easy job. You could have just wrote a whole book on uh, excerpts of people who knew him. <laughs> you know, so. You know, I think that the fact that they built that building there and named it after him and the statue was there is, uh, you know, is a really nice thing. And we met all the time in that building. I walked past the statue with the real living and breathing Coach Thompson many times, and he was very humble about it. He says in the book, that's my father's name on that building and not mine, because my father is the one who really sacrificed and struggled and strived to put me in a position to be able to, to do the things I did. So I find that to be very meaningful and a testament to his humility. He was a very humble person. And when I tried to get him to talk about all of his accomplishments and the big things he did, and I would say, coach, and that was amazing. Like, how did you, how did you, how were you able to do that? And he would just play it off and be like, yeah, well, you know, it happened. <laughs> it was, it, I mean, it, it was, it was remarkable. There's a lot of very accomplished people who always want to talk about the things that they did. 
and I did this and I did that. And then I made this happen and that happened. That wasn't what coach wanted to talk about with his book. He wanted to talk about why he did the things he did so people could understand what's important in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, speaking to his father, you know, his father who was illiterate, um, you know, who worked, you know, he was like a stone mason. Like he, it was something he told, you talked about in the book, how he literally could tell what kind of dirt it was by licking it. And he would yep. just, he would be yep. able to. No, he worked in a tile. He worked tile, in a tile factory. Tile factory. Yep. Yeah. So I think that speaks volumes of a, a guy who, you know, raised and developed such an inspirational figure for, you know, this guy, he was, he was illiterate. It's just incredible. Yes. And I got a real strong sense of who his father was in the book. And it's really summed up when coach Thompson says, I learned more from my father than someone with a doctorate. And my father could not uh, write the words, John Thompson. Yeah, so, that's yeah, that's very moving. It's wild. Yeah, it's 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 incredibly moving, especially you know, also with his mother too, who had a teaching degree, and was barred from teaching, you know, because of segregation um, and the way the country was at the time, and she had to scrub floors every day. Um, so it really is just a testament of how strong his family was, um, you know, to to provide for him, you know, despite all the obstacles they had to face. Absolutely. He credits his parents more than anyone else with what he was able to accomplish. I have a couple more questions then. I'm going to get you out of here. I know you're a, you're a busy guy and I, uh, I have to get back to my day job. You know, the old, the old adage, don't quit your day job. Um, <laughs> but, uh, what's, uh, yep, I didn't has, quit mine when I wrote this book. So. Yeah, there you go. Uh, what do you like doing better? Personally, you, do you like writing books or are you more of a writing uh, articles for magazines? I need to do some of everything. I'm the kind of person who has to have his hands in a lot of things at one time. And mm-hmm. that's just exciting to me and keeps the juice flowing. You know, my dad was an artist and he used to be painting two and three pictures at one time and fixing the car, <laughs> you know? And I'd be like, dad, why don't you just do one at a time? And he said, doing more than one at once helps me to do all of them better. And then I was like, so what's up with the, why are you messing around with the car all the time? It's so different. You're painting beautiful pictures and then you go get your hands dirty trying to fix the brakes on your own car. Why don't you just take the car to the shop? And he said, fixing the car is so different than what I do with my art that it makes me look at it a new way. And so that's why I enjoy writing different articles, different types of articles, getting on social media, producing documentaries, writing books, all of it sort of fits together for me and keeps me alive. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, that's that, as you know, as your dad mentioned, you know, that's, it's kind of like ADD on steroids, but it works for some people, you know, you can just like do a couple things at once, but ultimately it's going to end up being a better final product. So yeah, I know you mentioned earlier that your daughter's going to be playing basketball at Boston U next year. So would, would you rather you personally, score 50 points over LeBron, or would you rather your daughter go out and score 50 points? Oh, my daughter anytime. And I got a son who plays right now at Drexel University. And so it's such a great feeling as a parent to see your children, to see your children surpass you. And um, my son has already uh, far surpassed anything I was able to do in college basketball. And when my daughter scores her first basket of her career she will have equaled my entire college scoring output <laughs> so, so and, and it's a great feeling yeah i mean i wasn't i wasn't I gonna know. i wasn't my gonna ask him killing me in one-on-one i wasn't gonna ask about your career stats but you know you you offered it up voluntarily 
Oh yeah, man. You know, I was uh, I was an afterthought and, and the walk-on who didn't realize he was a walk-on at Yale University. I wasn't recruited to play there. I just, um, uh, I showed up with a love for basketball that I'd had through high school. A lot of kids reclassify and get an extra year of high school. I skipped a grade and got to college when I had just turned 17 years old. Wound up on the basketball team by accident, you know, scored one basket in my entire time there in varsity action, um, but still had a great experience. My love for the game remained stronger than ever. And I will say this, I've scored a lot more than two points since then. And um, if, if you doubting my credentials, holler at me and I will come and bust any of y'all within sound of my voice up in a game of one-on-one to this day, except right. my son Coltrane. He's waxing <laughs> me. But other than that, I'm busting all of y'all. I love it. Whenever you're down in, uh, whenever you make it down to the DC area, I'll, uh, I'll set up some pickup basketball. There it is. I'm, there it is. Uh, I'm, I'm in DC frequently. Okay. My go-to, my go-to pickup game is at Gonzaga high school, Tuesdays and Ooh. Thursdays, okay. 5:45 AM. They got pros up in there. Shout out to my man, Brooks Brown, who's organizing the games. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a, DC is one of the greatest basketball cities in the world. Coach Thompson was a very proud, citizen of washington and proud to be part of that lineage thank All you right. thank you jesse have a good one bye thanks for listening to this episode with jesse washington you can check out his work on the espn undefeated website and by following him on twitter at jesse washington his book with john thompson i came as a shadow is available online at all major book retail sites. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you all next time.